I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, how can this person not see what I see? How can they not see what's so incredibly obvious and it's right in front of them? Take the Met Gala recently, which I know all of you were keeping tabs on and what was going on there, but maybe you were. Maybe at least one in particular dress from the Met Gala. Now, the Met Gala was $35,000 for entrance into this party. And there was one politician, to, to go unnamed, um, <laughs> who showed up in a dress that said, tax the rich on the back. What's even more ironic is that dress was made by a dressmaker who owes $100,000 in back taxes. That's one of those moments where you look at this and go, how do you not see? How silly this is. How foolish this is. How do you not see what's plain to everybody else, what's right in front of our eyes? How do you not see this? Who made that decision and said, yeah, that's, yeah let's do that. that. That sounds like a good idea. I'm sure you've come across situations like that in your life. And we come across one such situation in John chapter 2, the rest of it, uh, this morning. As Jesus is here, and what seems so plain to us is just not plain at all to the Jews that are witnessing what Jesus does in this passage. But one of the things that we have to bear in mind, that we have to remember, is that Jesus is, is this mysterious figure to the, the people that he encounters in our text this morning. That even for his disciples, they, they don't fully grasp who it is that they're following. They don't fully grasp that, that this is... God in the flesh that they're following. They don't fully grasp that he is the, the dwelling place of the glory of God. And certainly the, the crowds that are gathered there, they're not going to understand who he is. And so John writes this for us, and John knows that we know. And so I think as John writes this passage, while those that are in the presence of Jesus in the text and the original hearers of what and, and witnesses of what takes place here, they don't see Jesus for who he is. I think John is reminding us by showing us this scene and causing us to go, how can they not see? He wants us to make sure that we've seen who he is and what he's all about. So take your Bibles, if you will. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we read this. After he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, they stayed there for a few days. Capernaum, even if you go there today, which if you are wondering, we do have another Israel trip planned for July of 2022. And in fact, you will hear this weekend an interest meeting being announced for if you're interested in attending. And men, let me just encourage you, if there's any way that you can plan for this, save for this, this is a trip worth taking. Um, to be able to go there to see with your own eyes uh, where Jesus was in Capernaum, which is in our text here, is one such location. And if you see the image on the screen behind me, uh, it may be a little hard to make out that that big kind of black block of concrete up top there. That's actually part of a church because we what what the church in, in Christians did in Israel for a long time is they said, "Hey, look, here's a significant place. Let's build a church on top of it." Um, and some of those churches are are, are beautiful. This though, I, I could do without. Uh, but underneath there, that that circular basin there is part of uh, where we believe this was actually Peter's mother-in-law's home in Capernaum. So it's likely that this was the home base for Jesus and his disciples. So even in our text, when it says, and they returned to Capernaum and they stayed there for a few days, it's, it's likely that this would have been where Jesus was. We read not long ago in the Gospels of, of the calling of the disciples and the calling of Matthew. This is where Matthew was called. He was sitting in a tax booth outside the synagogue here in Capernaum. 
And so Capernaum is a significant location. Well, Jesus goes back there and he's there for a few days. But verse 13 tells us that it was the Passover of the Jews coming up. And so Jesus left and went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish law stated that everyone who was 12 and older, every male, that is, who was 12 and older, was required to go up to Jerusalem. Because, again, you ascend up up to Jerusalem, no matter where you are, because Jerusalem was up on a mount, on Mount Zion there. So they had to go up to Jerusalem to make the pilgrimage to the the feast of the, the Passover. The Passover, if you'll recall back into the the Old Testament, was first instituted all the way back in Exodus chapter 12, and it has to do with the events of the Exodus. It has to do with the the Passover of the angel of death that God sent to take the lives of the firstborn of Egypt. And he instructed the Israelites, telling them, you're going to kill a a lamb, a a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb, the Passover lamb. You're going to take some of that blood, and you're going to spread it on the, the doorposts of your home, and the angel will see the blood and pass over your home. Well, on the heels of that, and in the instructions that he's providing for that, God says this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. That Israel year after year after year after year was to celebrate this feast, to remember the significance of their delivery from slavery. They're being set free from slavery and their provision through the sacrifice of this Passover lamb. That Israel was to never forget that. That they were always to remember and always to celebrate that. Well, it's interesting because Israel didn't do a very good job of that. Even the great King David and the great King Solomon didn't do a very good job of remembering to celebrate this Passover until we get to a, a young king whose name was Josiah. And we read this in 2 Chronicles 35, 18. No Passover. Josiah's reforms, right? Part of it was reinstituting the Passover. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why so much focus on the Passover here? Why is this not just a, a, a quick glance over this and let's move on? Well, a couple things are significant about John's mention of the Passover here. One of which is in the Synoptic Gospels, we only have one Passover mentioned and that's the Passover that takes place during the Passion Week. That's the Passover that takes place as Jesus is crucified, nailed to the cross, dies for our sins, and then rises from the dead. That's the only Passover we find in the Synoptic Gospels. But in John's Gospel, he records three Passovers. He records this one in 2.13. He records another one in chapter 6, verse 4, and another one in chapter 11, verse 55. That one being the, the final one, the one of Passion Week there. And one of the reasons that's important is it helps us understand the earthly ministry of Jesus. It actually helps us time the earthly ministry of Jesus. These three Passovers recorded by John are one of the reasons that we know that Jesus' earthly ministry lasted for three years prior to his death and resurrection. But there's another significance of this. And like I mentioned, all of the males in Jerusalem who were 12 years and older were required to make the pilgrimage to, or in Israel rather, who were 12 years and older, were required to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you would have had the Temple Mount packed with people at this point. As Jesus comes up to the temple, it would not have been a a lazy day where uh, there's maybe a a few people up there, maybe a few priests outside the temple. No, the Temple Mount would have been full of these pilgrims who were there to celebrate the Passover feast. 
The problem is, if you look back in our text at verse 14, it says, In the temple, when Jesus arrived, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. See, normally this would have taken place across the way from the Temple Mount. If you've been to Israel, you can stand at the Temple Mount and you can look across the way, and it's not a long ways away, but there's the Mount of Olives. And that would have been the main path that the pilgrims would have taken in coming in and approaching the temple. And so it was traditionally set up that these these animal purveyors and money changers were set up on the Mount of Olives. And it's not so much that there was a problem with what they were doing, because a lot of times the pilgrims would come if, if they needed a bull or they needed a goat. They didn't want to take that animal with them, depending on where they were traveling from. So to have animals for sale nearby the temple would have been normal and wasn't necessarily prohibited. That wasn't the problem. Another issue would have been the, the, the temple tax, which had to be paid by a shekel, which was a, a Jewish unit of money. Well, some of your, your pilgrims were coming from areas where the temple wasn't the normal method of, of payment, and so they needed to change out their money, their foreign money, for the money that was acceptable to pay the temple tax there. So that would have been, again, on the Mount of Olives. Those things were acceptable, normal, reasonable. But now they had moved into the temple, and when Jesus says it was in the temple, what he means is it was in the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles would have been one of the outer courts of the temple, and it would have been one of the areas that the Jewish people moved through to get into the inner courts where they were allowed to go. But the, the Gentiles, the nations, were only allowed to come into the court of the Gentiles, and that's where they could worship God. Think of somebody like Cornelius. He, as a, as a God-fearing Gentile, if he was to go to the temple mount, as, as close as he could get would have been the court of the Gentiles. So if he wanted to go there to pray, if he wanted to go there to worship, he would have been confined to that outer space. Well, now Jesus comes in and the court of the Gentiles has been turned into this market that should have been on the Mount of Olives. And you've got people there and they're selling these animals and you can imagine the commotion and the smell and the sounds and everything going on. And if you're going there as a Gentile to worship God, how are you expected to do that in the midst of all of this chaos? Another thing to think about, too, have you ever tried to buy cheap gas next to the airport? <laughs> yeah. It was not uncommon for these people. In fact, in another instance, when Jesus cleanses the temple in Mark chapter 11, he calls them robbers there. Why? Because, well, if you're coming to worship and you need an animal, and I've got an animal, and there's the temple, and where else are you going to buy an animal? Guess what I'm going to do to the price of that animal? I'm going I'm to gouge you on that. So people were lining their pockets in the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount, and Jesus shows up, and he's had enough of it. Verse 15, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. That means that part of, of, of those who he's driving out with the whip are the people selling these things. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a violent scene. This is not a scene that we think about when we think about Jesus that often. I mean, to, to overturn the tables, right? This is not like he walked up to them and meek and mild and said, hey, can I just set this on its side to make a point here? I'm, I won't, I'll try not to disturb too much. No, he's flipping the tables He's taking the coffers and the money changers and dashing them on the ground. You can hear the coins hitting the cobblestones there and people stopping in their tracks and wondering what's going on. And the commotion of driving the animals out, there's a stampede on the temple mount. 
Not to mention the people that he's driving out as well. Jesus was angry. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. If you want to know what that looks like, here's a picture of it. Because what angers Jesus is that those that were coming to worship his father, that were from the nations, were going to be walking into a, a zoo, a marketplace. And they had turned a place that was meant to be a place of worship into a place of, of filth and, and money-grabbing selfishness, greed. And Jesus is angry for the vindication of his father's name and the worship of his father. In Mark 11, again, that parallel passage, or not parallel passage, but the, the second cleansing, it says, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember, this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. For all the nations are supposed to be coming in here and you are interrupting their worship, is what he's saying. Isaiah 56, verse 7. These I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And Jesus comes up and says, this is unacceptable. What is meant to be a place of worship, you've turned into a marketplace. You've turned into a place to line your pockets off the back of my people and my father's people. This is a powerful, angry, zealous Christ sending notice to his people that he was there to shake things up. And like I said, what's plain to us was so unclear to so many people. And John, I think, is writing this to make sure that we understand and we see and that we don't miss these things about Jesus. And the first thing that we need to make sure we're not missing about Jesus this morning is this. Make sure you don't miss Jesus' passion. Beware of missing his passion here. Imagine somebody doing this on our patio sometime between the 9 and the 11 o'clock service. My house should be called a house of prayer, not a house of donuts. Flipping over the tables. Please don't do that. Gatekeepers would be, it would be a bad scene. But you get the point, right? Everyone would stop. Mouths would be on the floor. Wondering what in the world is going on. Who is this? Who gives this person the right to do this? Why is he doing this? See, Jesus knew all of that would happen. He knew this was going to create a stir. He knew that this was going to take him from the background. Remember in, in, in John's testimony, one stands among you whom you do not know. There's this mysteriousness about Jesus at this point. This is going to take him from the background. This is going to take him from, you know, a, a miracle at a family wedding. And this is now going to put him squarely in the spotlight. And not only is it going to put him in the spotlight, but it's also going to mark him. It's going to put him at odds with the Jews. It's going to put him at odds with the religious leaders. It's going to cause them to not like him, and not only him, but also his disciples. See, Jesus knew that this was going to be uh, met with a response, that, that in doing this, as he was pulling back some more of the veil on who he really is, that this was not going to sit well with people. But also, Jesus knew that this was inevitable and that he had to do it. Psalm 69, 9, this is the verse that's, the, recalled by the disciples, when it says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, a passion for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, those have fallen on me. The, 
this is a demonstration of the authority of Jesus, and he's exercising it because he was passionate for the worship of his father. And this place that was supposed to be about the worship of his father had turned into a place that was all about men. And he wasn't going to have it. He wasn't going to stand for it. And the authorities completely miss it. And we'll see later that they come up and they challenge him on his authority. But the reality is they should have been the ones zealous for the worship of God. The temple officials, the priests that were there, they should have seen that there's a problem here. And yet in this entire passage that we look at, there's zero contrition. There's zero remorse. There's not anybody that's there like later Gamaliel will say, hey, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't kill this guy because if he's legit, we're going to find ourselves standing against God. There's no Gamaliel on the scene here saying, hey, what if he's right? What if this really is a bad thing, what we're doing here? What if we really do need to take this back to the Mount of Olives and, and purify this place as a house of prayer for the nations? Nobody's doing that. They're completely missing Jesus' point. And man, what, what I'm saying is we need to, to make sure we don't miss Jesus' point here. We need to make sure that we have a passion and a zeal for the worship of God to be preserved and to be pure and not to be diluted or distracted or dismissed on our watch. You think back to, to people who have been passion, impassioned and passionate about the worship of God, right? You've got Moses in the golden calf incident. You remember he's coming down from Mount Sinai and he's got his two tablets in hand, tablets written by the finger of God. And he sees the commotion going on below and he thinks there's a sound of war, but he comes down and no, it's, it's the people celebrating, worshiping, whoring after a golden calf that he had set up, that Aaron had set up there. And Moses takes the tablets and smashes them on the ground in anger, this kind of anger that's a righteous anger over the, the compromised worship of God. And he goes down there and he takes the golden calf and he crushes it and grinds it up and turns it into powder and puts it in the water and he makes the people drink it, right? That's a, a zeal for the passion of the, of the worship of God. Or you think about Phineas and the Canaanite woman. When the Israelite brings this woman and he goes into his tent to, to sleep with her in the presence of all Israel to have sex with this Gentile, this pagan woman against the law of God and nobody's doing anything. And Phineas looks around and says, really? Nobody's going to do anything about this? Takes his spear, goes in the tent and pins both of them to the ground. That's a zeal and a passion for God. Or you think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They go up on the mount there and he says, okay, you go first. They call out. He says, well, maybe he's taking a leak. Maybe he's sleeping. Call louder, scream louder. They do everything. They can't do it. He says, okay, my turn. He says, hey, you know, before I do this, I don't want you to think this is magic on my part. Soak the thing. In fact, dig a trench and fill up the trench with water. Pour enough water that the trench is full. And, and, and then Elijah calls for God to show up and God does and he consumes the the sacrifice, and he consumes all the water, and he consumes all the water in the trench around the, the altar there as well. And then Elijah, after that, what does he do? He doesn't look at the prophets and go, okay, so go on your way. He says, no, let's go. Takes them down to the brook Kidron and slaughters them all there. That's a passion for God. One that maybe you don't know is a man named Matthias, and this is taken from 1 Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book and not a, a book that's written under the inspiration of, of the Spirit of God but still a book that does contain some of the history of what took place during the time of Israel. And there was a time that there was a pagan altar set up there in Jerusalem and a, a Jew came to, to bring a sacrifice on this pagan altar in the presence of Matthias. And Matthias was going to have nothing to do with it and went and took that Jew who was going to offer that sacrifice to a false god and he killed him on the spot. That's a passion for God's name. Pastor Peter, are you saying that we need to go about slaughtering people and killing them and 
grinding up golden idols and making people drink the water. No, of course not. But I'm saying we need a, a similar passion for the name of God. What does it look like today for the worship of God to be con- compromised? Well, how about false teachers? False teachers can creep in today through podcasts, through books, through music that's listened to. Man, if you have a, a fellow brother in Christ who is willingly exposing themselves to false teaching, you need to be a Phineas. You need to be a Moses. You need to be zealous for the worship of God, the pure worship of God, and get that out of that brother's life. Maybe it's just flippant worship. Showing up to worship and, and you're just going through the motions. You're not really concerned with this. You're, you're maybe another one distracted as you're worshiping. If you got your phone out, you're checking your email, you're, you're checking the, the score of the game that kicked off at the 10 o'clock hour, wishing that you were at home on the couch watching that rather than being in church, right? That's a, that's a compromised worship. And men, as we have a, a passion for the worship of God, and this one is more for us internally, individually, we need to have a passion for ourselves to worship God purely and, and rightly. And so when we find ourselves feeling that going through the motions or feeling like we are distracted in our worship, or here's another one, dismissive in our worship, we need to check ourselves and we need to overturn some tables in our own hearts. What do I mean by dismissive worship? I mean this, maybe Pastor Mike steps on your toes one Sunday because he's preaching on something and you feel that conviction. And rather than softening your heart to the spirit and and beginning to say, okay, wow, I've got some work to do this week, you enter what I like to refer to as the, the folded arm stage out there. If any of you are folded in your arms, I'm not preaching right at you unless you feel the conviction of the Spirit, then I am preaching at you, right? But your your whole demeanor changes. Your body posture changes. You're like, okay, fine, I'm not listening to the rest of this. No, man, we need to have a, a, a pure focus on worshiping the Lord. Or here's another one, just critical hearts. Oh, really, we're singing that song this morning? Oh, really, we we don't have the piano on the stage this morning? Man, the drums were too loud this morning. Worship wasn't loud enough this morning. It was too loud this morning. I didn't like the guy who did announcements this morning. And, and you take on this, this critical approach. Really, that's how, that's how we're interpreting that passage? I don't agree with that. These are ways that we can compromise our worship of the Lord, and we need to be men who are zealous to keep ourselves focused on a passion for the worship of God the way that Jesus had this passion. Yeah, he's had quite the entrance now. Again, no longer in the background, but squarely in the front. And the people want to know, who is this man? And what authority do you have to do these things? And that's what happens in verse 18. The Jews, remember, when we read in John's gospel, the Jews, typically these are the the Jewish people that are opposed to Jesus. The Jews said to him, these would have been the temple officials that are there, maybe some of the priests, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And there's a a bit of an irony here because the sign is what he just did. The sign is the cleansing of the temple, but they want another sign. They want a different kind of a sign. Now, John uses this word sign often in his gospel, in fact, primarily in his gospel, to refer to what the other gospels sometimes call mighty works or miracles or wonders, right? And there's three words in the Greek. There's dunamis, which is a, a, a power or a mighty work, where we get our English word dynamite from. And that's one way that you can describe uh, a miracle of Christ. And another one is tarata, which just means miracle or wonder. 
And that's another word that's used in in some of the the synoptics. John uses that one occasionally, but he only uses it when it's in combination with this this last one, rather, and that is the word semea, which is the Greek word for, for sign. Now, Carson says this. Carson says, John prefers the simple word signs. Jesus' miracles, he says, are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat, confusing tricks to impress the masses, but signs. Significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And that's the key there at the end. These deeper realities. In, in some ways, the, the signs of Jesus are like the miracles of Jesus. Or, uh, <laughs> duh. The par- parables of Jesus. That's what I was driving at. Because in the parables of Jesus, Jesus is telling a story. And if you don't have ears to hear, you hear the story and you think, well, that's nice. But what in the world did that mean? Well, likewise, if you don't have the eyes of faith to be able to see, you see the sign and you sit there and go, well, that was entertaining or that was pretty amazing. And I want to see more of that. That's the kind of sign that the Jews are looking for here from Jesus to validate what he did. Hey, show us some sign that shows us that you're something special, that that we should put up with what you're doing here. Well, Jesus' sign was not necessarily something that suspended the laws of nature, but it was a sign nonetheless for him to go in the temple and turn over the tables and drive out the animals and the money changers and say, this is my father's house. See, there was a sign that those with eyes of faith would see and the disciples later would understand what he's saying. But even they right now didn't fully grasp it. But these Jews, are, they're, they're not concerned. They're not, they don't have the eyes to see. Rather, they're concerned with the decorum of the temple probably a little embarrassed as well that this outsider has come in and done this on their watch. So they want to know, who are you and what sign do you show us to do this? Well, Jesus answers in verse 19. He says, you want a sign? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews think that he's talking about the physical building that's mere feet away from where they are. In fact, they scoff at him and they go, are you kidding me? It's taken 46 years to build this. We're in probably 27, 28 AD at this point in time. So we're going back to 2021 BC, the, the, the beginning of all this. 46 years to get where we are. And you're going to, you, number one, wait, destroy the temple? By the way, that will be the, the charge that gets Jesus down the road. Gets. When, when he is, is brought forward for, for crucifixion, they have the witnesses come forward that say, this man said he would destroy the temple. Well, notice that's a twisting of his words here. He doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple. He tells them, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will, rise, I will build it again. The Jews think he's talking about the physical building. He's not talking about the physical building. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In John 1.14, we read, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The Jews demanded this sign. Show us a sign. Jesus said, you'll have a sign. This temple, the temple that is standing right before you, that you're looking at with your eyes, though not eyes that have the faith to be able to see, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise again. The sign that Jesus would would provide would be the sign of his death and his resurrection. And yet they they didn't 
get that. They didn't understand that. And neither did the disciples in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, so a while from now, then his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But these Jews, show us a sign. What sign do you give for being able to do this? And Jesus basically looks at them and says, you want a sign? You want to know what authority I'm doing this on? I'm doing this on my own authority because I am God is what he's saying here. The temple was the dwelling place of God. Jesus says, I am God in the flesh. And they missed it. Our second point this morning is this. Beware of missing Jesus' presence. Not just his passion for worship, but beware of being like these Jewish leaders and being so concerned about the things about Jesus that you miss Jesus in the meantime. Men's Bible study, the weekend sermons, your HFG, men's conference, where you serve. Man, all of it should cause you to love Jesus more. It all should be about Christ. It should all be about exalting and worshiping Jesus. And these, these religious leaders were looking at Jesus, rebuking him for interrupting the worship of God. Looking at God saying, how dare you interrupt the worship of God? And sometimes we miss the point just as well as they do. Think about some of the reasons why we come to church. Sometimes we come to church, well, because we like the worship. That's why I'm at this church, because I really, I like the worship. It fits my style, fits my preferences, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm here. Or we say, well, I'm, I'm at church because I feel obligated to be here. I'm supposed to be at church. I, I, I feel guilty if I'm not at church, so that's why I'm at church. Or we come to church because we feel like we want to appease someone. Maybe you've got a wife with super sharp elbows. Or a neighbor who won't get off your back to invite you. Or a coworker who is on your case to say, hey, you should come to my church, you should come check it out. And so you, you're there because you feel like, man, I just need to get this person off my back. Or you come to church because you feel like, well, I, I need to be there because I need to serve. Or maybe you feel like I want the recognition that comes with service, so that's why I'm going to church. Or you come to church because, well, it's, I always have. I always have come to church. And these are all the wrong reasons to come to church. We come to church because we want to worship Christ. We come to church because we want to worship Jesus. Because we are the bride of Christ and he's the bridegroom. Any other reason falls short. Carson puts it this way. He says, it was important that the worship of God in its precincts, in other words, in the temple precincts, be pure. But it's even more important to recognize that the temple itself pointed toward a better and final meeting point between God and human beings. Jesus cleansed the temple. Under this typological reading of the Old Testament, he also replaced it, fulfilling its purposes. The temple was meant to anticipate Christ. Let's think about the temple's purpose, right? It was the, the dwelling place for God's glory. That's where God's glory resided, in the Holy of Holies, at the Ark of the Tabernacle. The, the Ark of the Covenant that resided, rather, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. It was also the, the place of sacrifice and offering, where men came to bring their sacrifices to appease the wrath of God against their sins. 
It was a reminder, right, of God's holiness and his separation from mankind. Because he was always in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go in. And that was only once a year into the Holy of Holies. And even then he had to come in with sacrifices for his sins. God was distinct and separate from us because he was perfectly holy and we are not. It was a place for man to come to meet with God. This was the temple. This was the purpose of the temple, right? Well, the temple was always meant to anticipate Christ because now that Jesus is on the scene, let's think about Jesus. Jesus is now the dwelling place of the glory of God. John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Right? In fact, the, the temple that these Jewish leaders are so con- concerned about protecting right now is, is a shell with nothing inside it at this point. The glory of God had long left that temple. The glory of God was standing outside that temple, and it was Christ. He's now the place now where the ultimate sacrifice would take place to appease the wrath of God. It's no more about, like the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats. He says, that can't take away the the guilt of sin. So now we've got a, a better sacrifice in Christ that has permanently removed our guilt and sin. Jesus is now the embodiment of, of God's holiness, right? And, and not a reminder of our separation, but now he's the bridge that bridges the separation between us and God. Because his holiness, he took 2 Corinthians 5.21 and imparted to and gave to and credited now to us by becoming that sacrifice for us. And he is now the place, not where men go to meet with God, but where God comes to meet with men. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And so they're saying, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says, because I am the temple. This is all ultimately about me. In fact, in in the new heavens and new earth, is there going to be a temple in the new heavens and new earth? Yes, in the sense that it's Christ, but there's not going to be a physical building. In fact, John, I think John's even a little surprised by this fact as he's writing in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city. Why? Well, because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Man, we need to be aware of missing Jesus' presence. Missing why we're here. We're here to worship Christ. And again, any other motivation for us to be here falls short. Well, the Jews wanted a sign. Jesus said, you'll have a sign. It's going to be when you destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it again in, in three days. And they didn't understand. They missed his point. John continues in John chapter 2 to say that there were many others that would see other signs of Jesus. And yet they would miss the point as well. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. It sounds like a good thing, right? Many believed. Okay, here we go. Here we go. We're, this is, we're, we're moving in the right direction. The problem is they're, they're believing in something, but they're believing with the wrong motives. And it all comes down to that word, saw his signs. See, there's, there's two ways that we can conceive of seeing. Seeing, number one, is as perceiving, right? And this is the good type of seeing. This is the seeing that we want. These are the eyes of faith. We see it in John 14, 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you disciples will see me. You will still know me. You will still perceive my presence. You will still understand me. 
or in Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive, I have knowledge of you. I see with an understanding that in every way you are very religious. That's the one type of seeing. This is not the seeing that they have in verse 23. The seeing that they have in verse 23 is seeing is spectating. And this is just witnessing. This is just watching. This is just being entertained. Mark 5, 15, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and, and they were afraid. Again, this is just seeing, the, the physical act of seeing without any perception that accompanies the sight. Or John 20, verse 14, Having said this, she turned and saw Jesus, Mary at the, the empty tomb. And remember, she doesn't, she doesn't see with a knowing. She just sees him and she says, where's the body? What did you do with the body? Where did you move the body? This is a seeing that's not accompanied with an understanding, a seeing that's not accompanied with faith. And this is the sight of these crowds that begin to follow Jesus in verse 23. It's, it's a common thing. John chapter 6, verse 2. And a large crowd was following him. Because why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing to the sick. They're not following Jesus because of hearing and believing. They're following Jesus because he's entertaining. And Jesus is famous, y'all. I mean, Jesus is, uh, John chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, this is on the heels of feeding the 5,000. He gets in the boat and he leaves and he goes back to Capernaum and the, the crowds, they rush around to, to beat him there. And then he shows up and they act all surprised and they're like, oh, Jesus, fancy meeting you here. What else do you have for us today? He says, you're not after me because you saw the signs in a way that you saw and believed. He says, you just want me to entertain you. You want me to feed you with some more bread and do some more magic tricks from you. That's why you're hanging out with me. See, that's the faith, or that's the sight, rather, that, that misses the point. See, when it says that they believed in him, this is a, a spurious faith. This is a faith that's, that's not built upon an understanding of who Jesus really is. This is a faith that's built upon the fact that he's the best thing around and he's the most entertaining thing around, so why not? But Jesus being God, in verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's a wordplay there. It's the same word in the Greek, the word for faith or believing. They believe Jesus. Jesus did not believe them. Why not? Well, it says, because he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is able to tell that this is not real faith, that this is not actual, that this is not genuine, that these people are just following him because they're entertained by him. They're following him because they're, they're a fan of Jesus, but not a follower of Jesus. They'd miss the deeper meaning of what he was driving at because they didn't have eyes to see. Man, we need to beware not only of missing his passion and his presence, but missing Jesus' point. Missing Jesus' point. How many churches are filled today with people just seeking to be entertained by Jesus? Or entertained about Jesus? Right? The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the, the faith healing, the word of faith network is built upon this premise. Come be entertained, and it's just a charade. It's a charade. Justin Peters is a, a man who's, who's paralyzed from the waist down. And he tells the, the stories about going to these faith healing events, wanting genuinely to be healed, thinking that he could be healed perhaps by these people like Benny Hinn and others. And, and when he shows up, 
they take him and they stick him in a back room along with all the people that have cancer and sickness and real problems. Why? Because they know this is a charade. They know that Benny can't make this man walk. But the masses flock to them. Why? Because they want to be entertained. They want to show about Jesus. They don't want the reality of Jesus. Or just the, the fluff that exists out there in churches today. Right? The churches that pack out former arenas with 20,000 people because they're going to tell you about your best life now. And come on, and, and here, Jesus wants to bless you. You know what? You, just, you need to believe that Jesus has good things in store for your life. You need to believe that Jesus has that bigger house for you, that bigger promotion for you, that boat for you. You need to believe that Jesus is going to help you get through corona. You need to believe that Jesus is going to help you get rebound with your 401k. Jesus has got good things. You just need to believe enough. People like that are asked about, well, why don't you preach about sin? And they say things like, well, well, I don't need to preach about sin because there's enough bad news in the world as it is. No, there's not. The world majors in fleecing people into thinking there's not bad news out there. We have a vaccine that's going to make everything better. Oh, look at this. We're going to just give you money. Where's it coming from? Don't worry about that. We're just going to give you more money. Uncle Joe, writing you a check. The, the world is not about bad news. The world is about numbing ourselves to death, entertaining ourselves to death, so we don't have to face anything that's bad news. Well, men, as Christians, we need to make sure that we don't miss Jesus' point, the point of why he came to begin with. People flocking to Jesus going, what do you have for me, Jesus? You want to know what Jesus has for you? He has deliverance from eternal damnation. He is the answer to the fact that you are a sinner and that God is holy. He has a payment to be made on your behalf that you can't make on your own. He has a righteousness that he's going to credit to your account as he takes your sin and your guilt and puts it on himself. He has a promise that he is right now interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. He has the gift of the Spirit that he leaves with us until he comes back to get us. And he has that promise that he is preparing a place for us and that he will one day come back and get us. That's what Jesus has for us. That's why we follow Jesus. Not to be entertained and not so that our life is good. There are plenty of Christians who are suffering immensely right now. And, and they are praying, God, please remove my suffering. And yet the follow-up as their Savior prayed is, yet not my will, but your will be done. And you say, well, what keeps them going? The, what keeps them going is the real offer that Jesus has here. And that is that paradise is not to be found here, but to be found in the future with him. Man, we can't miss Jesus' point the way that these missed Jesus' point. There are so many people in churches today and probably also in our church who are simply spiritual voyeurs. They're there just hoping to benefit from some glimpse of something spectacular, to be entertained, to get some karma that's going to rub off well for them in their life, to treat Jesus in the church like some sort of lucky rabbit's foot, but that's not at all what the point of Jesus is. And men, we need to be, make sure that we haven't missed Jesus point. Seems so obvious to us, right? Because we know the rest of the story. I don't know what I would have thought if I was on the Temple Mount on that day. 
I know the disciples, it took them until after his resurrection to fully understand what Jesus was talking about. But John's writing this to us, knowing that we know the rest of the story because he wants to remind us, hey, make sure that you see Jesus. And so, man, that's what I want to make sure of this morning, that you have seen Jesus. And if you say, yes, I've seen Jesus, praise God for that, man, because the only reason it's simple and plain to us is because by his grace, he's given us the ability to see. Second Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the lost. But for us, he's removed that veil, and as Paul says there, he's shown the light of Christ into our hearts. Praise God for that reality. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for that reality, thankful for Christ, thankful that he is who he is, and he came to do what he came to do. Lord, thank you that we don't have a Savior that's just concerned about this world, but a Savior that came to deal with our need for righteousness so that we can live in the next world with you, the eternal world, the unending world with you. God, I pray that there would be far less fanatics and just spectators in our midst in in this world and far more genuine followers of Christ. And we need you to open their eyes to be able to, to see that change take place. And so we pray that you would do that, Lord, so that more and more would come to see Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.